Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much for these wonderful words. Thank you that they are your words, these ancient words that have been passed down through generations to us today. We thank you so much that we can have these words in our hands and we can read them and study them and understand them and and by that know you, know who you are, know what you're about, know what you've done for us which leads us to put our faith in you and our trust in you, giving our lives for you, Heavenly Father, because of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that you would continue to encourage us as we look through these words of John, your words that John has written down for us. Help us, Father, as we think through the the struggles and the difficulties and the hardships that we experience living life in the here and now, that we may be encouraged to trust you and to look forward to that day when all things will be well. Help me, help us all to hear from you this morning. Teach us, train us, change us to be more like Jesus. Amen. Sometimes when I talk to Christians about the ups and downs of life, people often talk about this tension that seems to exist, this Christian tension of living life in the here and now while we wait for the return of Jesus to come. I don't know whether you've experienced this tension, the Christian tension of knowing that because of Christ and the cross, all of our sins are paid for. We are free from sin and clean before God, but yet day by day we stumble and we fall into sin. That tension of being in a living relationship with our Heavenly Father, knowing Him in Christ, having the Holy Spirit dwell within us, and yet not able to fully see Him yet and know Him fully. That Christian tension of being new creatures in Christ, but yet still living in a fallen world. Christian tension that theologians call the now and the not yet. All the blessings we have in Christ because of the cross, because of the resurrection, are ours fully, completely now in him. But we don't yet experience them fully and completely until that last day. In our passage this morning, I think the disciples are experiencing and facing a similar tension Jesus has revealed himself as the Messiah. He's told them he's come from the Father. He's revealed to them um, the, the plan of his kingdom, the, the plan of God, the gospel. He's called people to come and follow him as the savior of the world. And yet the disciples are now seem to be facing a future where Jesus will be gone, where he won't be there, where the kingdom is, is here, but yet it's not quite there yet. And so Jesus wants to encourage his disciples and us this morning, telling them that actually as you grieve, as you wonder, as you question, as you will fall into sin, it'll be okay. Because just in a little while, all things will become clear. He says that their grief will turn to joy, that their questions will produce answers, that their failure will lead them to faith. So as Jesus points his disciples beyond the cross to the resurrection and shows them the implications of the resurrection, how the resurrection changes everything, 
so may we, as we look back to the resurrection, see the difference that because of that, the difference it makes for our lives now as we wait for the not yet to be fulfilled. So firstly, Jesus speaks about grief turning to joy. So because of the resurrection, grief turns to joy. Read with me from verse 16 again. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of the disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while we will see him no more, then after a little while we will see, you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, What does he mean by, In a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. These poor disciples are confused about a lot of stuff at the moment. They've been told that he's going away in a little while. And then he'll see him again in a little while. I said, what does he mean by this little while that keeps getting repeated? Well, I think Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection. The little while when he'll be gone is his death. The little while when he'll see him again will be the resurrection. But Jesus doesn't tell them this. He doesn't directly answer the question. Instead, he goes on to talk about the implications of what that little while will mean for them. Read what he says to them. Verse 20. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because her joy that the child has come into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice. And no one will take away your joy. The disciples will, will weep, they'll mourn, because Jesus will be crucified, he'll die. The disciples are grieving already because they know Jesus is leaving. But their grief will only grow as they see their friend, their Lord, their Savior nailed to a cross. As they grief, the world around them rejoices. The crowd shouts in celebration that they've killed this false prophet. The Roman soldiers laugh and mock and spit at him. And Satan rubs his hands, thinking that he has rid the world of the Son of God. For them, there was much grief. But in a little while, just a little while, three days later, Jesus rises from the dead and he appears to the disciples. And I quote John 20, verse 20, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Jesus uses this metaphor of a woman giving birth to a child. If you're a mother, you know what that is about. I'm sure we all know that the labor pains experiencing, being experienced giving birth are painful. It's horrible. It's horrendous. But yet when a child is born, for most that joy comes. And you see that newborn baby and you forget the pains of labor. Now Jesus doesn't just choose a random picture to talk about and to illustrate his point. He talks about the Woman giving birth because it's mentioned in the Old Testament. It's a picture that God uses in the prophets. 
As Israel is struggling and suffering with their sin and in exile, the prophets talk about the labor pains and the, the coming birth, which speaks of the coming salvation when God will one day come and deliver his people. That event has come. It's the cross where Jesus dies for the sins. He dies defeating the enemy and he rises from the dead to bring that joy and to bring salvation to his people. And so for us as Christians living many, many years after the resurrection, because of the resurrection, we too will can experience the joy. Because the historical fact of the resurrection, it means that we can experience joy. And it's a joy that Jesus says will never be taken away. No matter what happens to us, it will never be taken away. Remember Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi in Acts 16. They'd been arrested. They'd been beaten with rods. They'd been thrown into prison. They are deep in the inner cell with their feet in stocks. But what do they do? About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. As we experience sorrow in life, and in this context, as we experience opposition and persecution, as your work colleagues taunt you and laugh at you, as your friends dismiss your faith and and make you stumble with their arguments, as Christians all around the world experience suffering and are imprisoned and even killed for the gospel, we will experience grief in this world. But because of the resurrection, our grief will turn to joy. A joy now, knowing that we're in Christ and he's defeated sin and death, but knowing that yet there is a greater joy awaiting us. There's a lovely story of a Chinese man who was put in prison for proclaiming the gospel. But when he was in prison, he continued to talk about Jesus with the prison guards. He was beaten, and he had food withheld from him. But he continued to speak about Jesus. So they took away his Bible. They put him in a tiny cell with no windows and no guards. They thought that maybe if we put this man in complete solitary confinement, then he will lose his faith. But days and weeks passed, and this man experienced no light and no sound. And they came to him and they said, do you renounce your faith? And he said, you can take away my Bible. You can take away my light. You can take away my life. But you can never take away my Lord. You can never take away my joy. This man had survived, how? By quoting scripture in his mind and by singing songs of joy. The Lord had remained with him through his grief. Because of the resurrection, he had joy in the deepest and worst of circumstances. For us living here in Oxford, in Great Britain, we don't feel the real tension of this as much as others around the world do. People who really suffer as the world rejoices in their faces. But I do hope and I do pray that we do feel some 
kind of tension, living in this world but not being of the world. Last week, I think it was, we thought about this, this idea that we are being taken out of the world. Jesus has chosen us out of the world and the, the world hates us because of it. But friends, yes, we will grieve, but because of the resurrection, there is joy now, but there is greater joy to come. Because of the resurrection, grief turns to joy. Secondly, because of the resurrection, questions produce answers. Throughout this farewell discourse, the only time that we hear from the disciples, mainly, is when they're asking Jesus a question. Lord, where are you going? Why can't we come with you now? We don't know where you're going, so how can we follow you? Why won't you show yourself to the world? What does he mean by in a little while? Lots of questions that they've had. And you can imagine that once Jesus has died, there is lots more questions because they don't understand. They don't quite get what is going on. They're struggling with this real interest. They've, they've seen Jesus. He's the Messiah. They've seen his signs. They believe in him, and yet he's died. They don't quite understand what's going, going on, and maybe there's doubt for them. Well, Jesus encourages them in verse 23. And he says, in that day, speaking of the resurrection, in that day you will no longer ask me anything. Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I've been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the father on your behalf. No, the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. In that day, they will be able to ask and in this context, he means ask a question as well as ask for your needs. They will need to ask, well, firstly, probably because the resurrection will answer so many questions. They will see Jesus alive again. He would have proved all he had said and predicted has come true. He'll prove that he is who he said he is. But they will no longer have to ask because their relationship with the Father will have changed. They will be in relationship with their Heavenly Father because of Christ. Jesus has promised the Holy Spirit will come and dwell within you and live there. He'll teach you. He'll remind you. He'll make things clear to you. Questions that the disciples had will have answers. And they'll be able to talk to the Heavenly Father and they'll have answers and they'll have clarity. Clarity that they've written down in the Bible for us. When I was a student, one of the evangelistic activities we used to do was to go around campus asking people questions. One question we would ask was, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? Often people would give answers like, what about evil and suffering? What about science and faith? What about other religions? And we would take these questions and they would form the titles of talks that we would give 
at a lunchtime event. And for me, it was at these times, at these lunch bars, when I heard Christian leaders give really good biblical answers to tough questions from these university students that it helped me realize that the Bible does give good, reasonable answers to the big, important questions of life. And it's really interesting to see non-Christians engage with these issues, to see them ask further questions, and to see them come to see the truth of the gospel and give their lives. Just this summer, as we've heard on camps, but also on the streets of Oxford, people have been asking questions. There's a story of an atheist who came up to somebody giving a talk, and they first of all heckled him, but then they listened. They asked questions. They admitted that they couldn't explain the world, and they admitted that there seemed to be some spiritual dimension of life. And after discussing these things, he accepted a booklet about the resurrection. So we pray that he'd read it, and we pray that he'd come to know the Lord Jesus. People of the world have questions. The Bible gives wonderful answers. But of course, questions don't stop once you become a Christian. Throughout the Christian life, questions continue as we grow in our relationship with the Father, as we get to know him better. We have questions answered, but it produces more questions. I was talking with some of the older members of our congregation about this on Friday, and Brian Hennigolf, who's not with us this morning, he was saying, talking about his relationship with God over the years, he was saying that when I was a young man, I thought that I knew everything. I was pretty much sorted on my theology and what I believed, but as I've grown through life and as I've experienced the ups and downs, as new questions have come to my mind, I've realized that the more I know God, the more I realize I still don't know about God. And that's the tension. That's the tension of, of having a living relationship with our Heavenly Father and yet not fully knowing him now and, and still struggling to understand things of life. I'm sure if we were to go around each of us in this room, we could all share the questions, the deep, questions that we have about life, about God, about the Bible, questions that are personal to us because we've experienced sorrow in life, death of a loved one, illness, no marriage, lack of a job, lots of questions that come up through life that we don't understand, not just the questions, but how they relate to God and what is God doing in all of these things in our lives. One key to seeing the answers of our questions is that relationship. Like any good relationship, there needs to be communication. If you don't talk to your husband or your wife, then the marriage will fall apart. You know that once you move away from somewhere and you stop communicating with your friends in that place, that that friendship doesn't necessarily die, but it, it gets less. So it is with our relationship with our Heavenly Father, It needs to be worked on. We need to talk to God and we need to listen to him. How do we do that? We do it through his word. His word that's been written for us, that's been passed down to us as we read the Bible, as we study it, 
as we see who God is and what he's done for us, as we bring the questions we have, whatever the question is, we know that the Bible, because it's true and relevant today, can give some kind of an answer. There is that tension because we know that perhaps not all of our questions will be answered in this life. But we know that one day they will. The Apostle Paul says to the Corinthians when talking about knowledge and prophesying, he says that now, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the completeness comes, that is when we see Jesus, what is part disappears. For now we see only as a reflection in the mirror, but then we will see him face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. As we struggle with the tension of the now and the not yet, of having a living relationship with God, but yet not fully knowing him completely, we know that one day all those answers will become clear. People have imagined that when we get to heaven, there will be this big long queue in front of God because we've all these questions that we want answered. Maybe. But I wonder, I just wonder, that when we see Jesus face to face, most of our questions, maybe all of our questions, will be answered. What a day that would be. Because of the resurrection, grief turns to joy, Because of the resurrection, questions produce answers. And because of the resurrection, failure leads to faith. These poor disciples have not been able to cope with a lot of stuff that Jesus has been teaching them. They've been slow to get it, slow to get who he is. Their understanding of his coming death is still puzzling in their minds. Jesus has been speaking figuratively, His language has been obscure. He's been using metaphor. He's been trying to say things in a way that will help them to understand, but not overburdening them. He said, there's much more I have to say to you in the last week's passage, but you're not able to cope with these things yet. But then the disciples seem to say they've got it. Verse 29. He says, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you a question. This makes us believe that you came from God. They make this true statement of faith. They believe Jesus is from God. Then surely that should lead them to trust him and believe in him for other things, for them to see the necessity of the cross. But in Jesus' question, he doubts. Do you now believe? And I think he probably asked it with a skeptical tone. A time is coming, in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each of you to his own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone. My Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus predicts that soon, literally a few hours, if that, 
the disciples will have run away. They would have scattered. They would have deserted Jesus as he is arrested. They would have fallen away. And you can imagine the scene Saturday morning, the day after. Not only has Jesus gone dead in a tomb, not only are they afraid for their own safety, not only are they now plagued with more questions, but now they're overcome with incredible guilt. Wasn't it just the other day when Peter said, hey, Lord Jesus, I will die with you. Now he's denied Jesus. They fled, they've sinned against God. But then the resurrection. But then the resurrection, after that, Jesus meets his disciples and there's reconciliation. Think back to our Easter series in John 20 and 21. And we eavesdropped on that conversation Jesus had with Peter. As Jesus offers forgiveness, as he reinstates Peter as his disciple, there is forgiveness and reconciliation because of the resurrection, because of the cross. A new relationship that Peter could have and all can have because of what Jesus has done. At the cross, Jesus has overcome the world. He's overcome sin. He's overcome death and Satan. And in his resurrection, there is new life and life forevermore. Sin has been paid for in full. And so therefore, our future is sure and secure in him. If you are sports fans, and in particular cricket fans, then you will know that this summer England has played host to Australia in the Ashes. There's been a series of five tests, five matches. And the good news is that England won the series 3-2. But entering into the last test the other week, England had already won the series. They were leading 3-1. So it meant that no matter what happened in the last test, victory was theirs. Whether they would win, which they didn't, or lose, which they did, they had already won the tournament. It was theirs, and they would send the Aussies packing. Now, just because England had already won the series, it didn't mean that they didn't care about the last match. It didn't mean that they didn't want to win. But it did mean that although they lost hopelessly, they had won the tournament. They'd won this series. The ashes were back in their hands. Victory was theirs. And so it is with the Christian life. We will fail to live up to the life that God calls us to live. But in Christ, we have won the victory. He's won it for us. But that doesn't mean that we live our lives how we want. It doesn't mean that it's okay that we fall and fail. But it does mean that when we do, there's forgiveness. There's reconciliation. There's a hand bringing us back to our feet. Maybe this morning you fear that God accepts you because of your sin. Maybe you fear that God will never use you because you keep letting him down. Maybe you fear that you're not even a true Christian because you're just not living that life that he calls you to live. Well, even the great apostle Paul struggled with sin and he battled with these very issues. And to the Romans in chapter 7, he says, I do not do the good that I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, I do. 
Now, if I do not do what I want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. And so I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And that's the tension, the tension of the now and the not yet. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. We have the Spirit and we live by the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans. But yet we still live in the flesh and we battle with that flesh and it's there with us. And we stumble and we fall. And Paul finishes the chapter and he says, What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. In our struggle with sin, there's no need to fear because Jesus has overcome the world. He's won the victory. He's paid for sin once and for all. And so as we walk through life, as we fall and stumble, he will pick us up, but we will grow and we will become more like Jesus as we get to know him and as he helps us work through and overcome sin in our lives. So, friends, this morning, if you're a Christian, if you live with this tension of the now and the not yet, Jesus will use the griefs that you experience of life, the griefs of living in this world and not being of it, the griefs of having opposition from those around us. Jesus points us to him. He shows us that because of his resurrection, there is complete joy now, And he points us forward to a day when there will be no more grief ever again. And as you face hardship and questions and doubt in your relationship with him, he points us back to the resurrection because there, that is how we are in relationship with him in the first place. And he points us forward as we read and study and pray and get to know him better We look forward to a day when we will see him face to face and all things will become clear. And then as we go through life and as we stumble and as we fall, he points us back to the resurrection, which points us forward to a day when we will be free from all of our sin. And until that day comes, He will help us by his Holy Spirit to become more and more like his son, who we will see on that last day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can know you, that we can be in a living relationship with you, that your Holy Spirit dwells within our hearts because of Jesus Christ, because of the cross, because of the resurrection. We thank you that at that event, all was done. Sin was defeated, death was defeated, Satan was conquered. And although these things still exist and battle on in the now, we know that the resurrection points us to a day when they will finally be all defeated. We will be with you, dwelling with you, if we have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray this morning for us as Christians that as we grieve, as we question, as we fail, that we will not collapse and fall away, but they would look to you, we would trust you, we would cling to you.
and that we look to the future and we look to that day when all things will become clear and all things will be completed. Help us. We need your help. Amen.